You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. I, I want to jump in today and, and share from really just four verses this morning, found in three different passages, but they're all parallel or they relate with one another. And I want to invite you this morning, if if you'd be comfortable to stand with me in the honor of reading of God's word this morning, would you stand with me just one more time today? We won't stand for long, I promise. But one of the ways that I found it to be honoring to the word of God, to recognize God's word as more than just a book, but to truly allow it to be the authority in our life is just to every so often, maybe when we come to church, just to stand and be like, God, I, I see that what I'm reading right now is way more than the novel that I've read earlier this week of the textbook that I've been studying for the exam coming up, but it's, it's your word, your voice speaking to me. And so there's just three passages I want to read from, four total s- scriptures, beginning in John chapter 13. And the, the scene here is the Last Supper. You're familiar maybe with that, that painting. And Jesus is speaking here to his 11 closest friends. Judas at this point has already left him to go betray him. And so just, just the, the 11 guys who stood with Jesus to the very end, they're They're at the table right now, and Jesus gives them this final command. Again, these are in the final hours of his life. How many of y'all know, like, you you only say what's most important at the end of your life. I've had the opportunity now to sit with five different people in hospital rooms or in homes where they were breathing their last breath, where I saw them have some of their final conversations. They weren't talking about things that didn't matter. They, They weren't talking about the promotion that they missed out on in the home that they had hoped to one day purchase. They were only talking about that which was most near and dear to them. And Jesus is in the same situation here in John 13. And in this moment, he says, I want to give you guys a new command. And this command is going to trump every other command. I want you to love each other as I've loved you. Next slide. Help me out. You should love each other. Your love for one another is going to prove to the world that you're my disciples. Keep that in mind. Now we fast forward here just a few hours, same night, just a few hours later in John chapter 17. Now Jesus is praying a prayer and he's praying this prayer for the church that was in that moment, the Christians, the believers in that day. And he also earlier in John 17 clarifies, he's also praying for all of us who would one day believe later on down the road in the future. And so this is a prayer and it's pretty sobering to consider that Jesus prayed for us. And so just a moment ago as we were praying for Israel, this, these words right here are words that Jesus was, was praying into existence, into our own life today in 2023. And he says, may they, the Christians, experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, that you love them as much as you love me. Now we fast forward after the crucifixion, a few days after the day of Pentecost, after 3,000 people just added to the church, this church started growing pretty radically. And it says at that time, all the Christians committed themselves. I know you all are familiar with this scripture. Just a few weeks ago, Pastor Brian introduced a brand new vision for the church. A new, in one sense, it's not a new direction that the Lord is taking you. It's a further. It's almost as if like the baton is now passed to a new player in one sense. And we now, as a church here at Queen City, are that new player that the vision has, has or that the baton rather has been passed Onto, and, and this is what they did. He says, they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. I want to share this morning from a message entitled Spiritual Friendships. I don't have a lot of time this morning, but I do believe that this is just going to be a small injection into what the Lord is doing here at Queen City. And as I listened, and I keep in touch really well with what's happening here, and as I Listen to the teachings recently in the direction of where the Lord is taking 
this community, which is more than just a, it's more than just a gathering, it's a family that the Lord is wanting to take on a journey together. I believe that this, some of you won't remember much of what I say today, but I believe that there's a spirit that God wants to deposit into our lives today, an attitude that he wants to equip us with today as we journey further together as a church family into this new vision that he has so beautifully and graciously given to you. And so with humility today, would you just open up the palms of your hand in front of you as we pray together? And the opening of our palms is nothing overtly spiritual about it, it's just an outward way of saying, Lord, I want to receive from you today. God, we pray that the word that is spoken today, that which is of you would fall on hearts that are ready to receive it. That which isn't, God, would, would just be removed from us. But make up the distance, Lord, today between what I've prepared to say and what you want to speak to the hearts and the minds of everybody in the room and those watching online. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, everybody who agreed said amen. Amen. You may be seated. Those chairs are squeaky. <laughs> I want to share today from a message entitled Spiritual Friendships. Spiritual Friendships. Uh, back in the spring, I was at a traffic light, and sitting in front of me was a vehicle with a leftover bumper sticker that was from about three years ago that was in reference to the very peaceful, tranquil, and joy-filled election season of 2020. Come on, somebody. <laughs> And the bumper sticker was, was pretty comical, and it certainly kind of put a unique smile on my face, and probably because I just related to it a little bit. The bumper sticker said this, and I quote, 2020, dogs, because people suck. <laughs> I don't know if you ever felt that way before. Maybe that's a bit crass for a Sunday morning. It probably is, and if that offends you in any way, shape, or form, come back next week, and Pastor Brian will fix all of my bad theology, but... <laughs> but but sometimes people can hurt us. Sometimes people can frustrate us. And a lot of times, if we're honest, we are those people who hurt others and frustrate people too. But here's what I've discovered in my own life, and I haven't had to look far or observe very long to identify this, that the more that I'm hurt by people, the more people frustrate me, the more that people let me down, the more that people do things that just doesn't resonate with kind of building me up, I tend to kind of keep those people at arm's length. I kind of resist them. I kind of back away from them. And there was a time even when I can look back on my life where I was really quick to be vulnerable with people. I was really quick to engage in new relationships with people. I was really quick to open up to others. But over the course of time, come on, how many of y'all know you don't have to live very long to discover that sometimes you find yourself becoming more reclusive than you do inclusive with other people because they hurt you and you don't want to be hurt again. And so as a defense mechanism, sometimes good, oftentimes not so good, we put up these walls. And we find ourselves actually becoming more lonely and lonely. We have more friends than ever before, but less intimate relationships. In fact, this is not only true of you here in the West America, but this is true all across the world. In fact, in 2017, Theresa May, the former British prime minister, said, and I quote, loneliness is the sad reality of the human life. And she began to identify and others alongside of her that loneliness is the new pandemic of our day and age. And this is long before COVID ever came on the scene. In fact, as a result of them identifying loneliness being the sad reality of our day, the British prime minister and others began to realize that loneliness became more detrimental to our physical health than both obesity and smoking combined. 
And many of you have probably seen these statistics before, but as a result, Teresa May assigned a minister of loneliness. What a sick job title. Like how many of y'all like to show up at a party? Like I would. Like my 10-year class reunion, my 20-year class reunion, you'd be like, what are you doing now? And what are you doing? I'm about to one-up you. I'm the minister of loneliness. In fact, they're not the only ones. Japan has since assigned a minister of loneliness as well in, in order to identify a loneliness strategy. And they did so, and they, they coined this term social prescribing. Now, this has become more universally well-known within psychology and the world of social sciences. And in particular, though, it's a growing practice that directs patients to community workers offering tailored support to help improve one's overall health. Now, here's what's interesting, though, that after three years of this minister of loneliness being in effect, they discovered that they weren't really making a difference, that the trend of loneliness and depression and anxiety and everything that goes along with it continued to rise, that their impact wasn't really all that impactful. Now, if this was a movie, this would be the point or the scene where the superhero shows up, right? Like, enter Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, only to be bailed out by all of the women. Come on, somebody. <laughs> but, of course, we know that doesn't happen in real life. And here's what we can discover, too, that with humility, we, we can say that government isn't the solution to this problem, as important as government may be. But the loneliness problem isn't a political issue, it's a Jesus issue. Now, we actually have the answer to this. This is a really big deal, and I'm going to show you biblically here in a moment as to why this is so critical and how we've fallen so far away as a church from actually leaning into church being a family, being the solution to this problem in just a moment. But here's what I want to give you, and some of you are going to be set free from this shame that you felt as a result of what some of you have experienced in the past and I just want to share this with you. This is critical for us to understand. I really believe this is critical for you as a church community, for us as a family here at Queen City, to just kind of wrestle with and allow this to settle in our souls. And here it is. That to need or to want deep friendships, it's not a sign of spiritual immaturity. It's a sign of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of health. Now, some of you have felt, maybe even had some condemnation placed on you. See, condemnation is what the enemy puts on you to kind of keep you in a place of shame. Conviction is what the Spirit of God does within you to lead you into a more life-giving place and healthy relationship with Christ. And some of you have experienced condemnation in this area, this area of feeling like, I want deeper, more intimate, better relationships, healthier relationships, which will define what health is here in just a moment. They're not perfect, but healthy. And as a result, you felt like, but maybe I shouldn't want that. Maybe I should just be satisfied with just being by myself, with just being alone, without having any deep, intimate relationships. No, that's not how we're supposed to live life. In fact, spiritual formation, as we'll discover here in just a moment, as I know that you've been taught so well here throughout the last series, the best part of the ways in which Jesus wants to form you into his image is actually primarily done in the context of community, not outside of community. And we see this modeled all the way throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. Let me prove this to you in just, just a moment. Consider this, that in Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the world in chapter 3, that's really important to note here. So this is, this is before humanity fell. This is before sin. That before, before sin enters the world, all the way through the first two chapters, God looks at his creation, everything that he's formed, 
everything that he's brought life out of, and he calls it good. The sun, the moon, good. The separation of the sea and the land, good. The sea creatures and the land creatures, it's all good. And then he creates Adam, man. And he steps back and he says, it is not good. It's not good that he's alone. Now here's what we have to note. Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. Adam was lonely because he was perfect. The ache for friends, for intimate relationships, is the maybe one of the few aches that you have in your life that's not a result of sin. It's a result of having been made in the image of God, bearing God's image. If you are lonely, if you want more friends, if you want closer friends, you are not dysfunctional, you are fine. You are lonely because you are not a tree. You are not a a glass of water or a cup of coffee. You have been made in the image of God as a son and daughter of God, even regardless of 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 your relationship with God. All of humanity bears his image and consequently desires this form of relationships. Consider this for a moment. What was the purpose of all of that which God did? What was the purpose of creation? What was the purpose of redemption? God through Christ Jesus, redeeming us back into a relationship with him. It was to make us friends. Someone comes along and asks Jesus, hey, rabbi, teacher, Lord, um, what's like the most important command? And Jesus says, well, there's not just one, there's two, and they're of equal importance. You gotta love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Both of them are all about relationship. It's all about friendship, community. And we can't dismiss the reality, though, that the church, not government, not a minister of loneliness, is supposed to lead the way when it comes to the way in which we do relationships. But unfortunately, if we're honest with ourselves, if we, if we hold up the mirror in our own proverbial life, we, we can quickly identify that the church hasn't been leading the way. We've just been following the patterns of the world. We don't look much different than the rest of the world. We talk about people the same way the rest of the world does. We offer up insight and gossip and disguise it as you ought to just be praying for and would you pray for and yet really we're just gossiping about somebody the same way that the rest of the world does. We we engage in cancel culture the same way the rest of the world does. We hold each other at arm's length and don't pursue reconciliation the same way the rest of the world does. But it wasn't always this way. In Acts chapter 2 that we read just a moment ago, it says that the early church, before it got real big and fat, before it had all of the systems and programs and, and tried to grow in its own intellectual self, it, it just committed themselves to, to four things. And we read here again, to the teaching of the apostles, that's the scriptures, that's the word of God, to the life together, and that's what Tim Keller calls spiritual friendships, the common meal, sharing meals together, which I know is what your life groups will be launching here in the new year is all about, and to prayers. Praying, as we did a moment ago, for what's going on in Israel. Praying what's going on in your children's lives. Praying what's going on in your education. Praying what's going on in your job. Coming together to pray. Now, some of you really geek out on a Christian apologetics. Like some of you love the ways in which you can learn and identify how you can defend your faith and and argue for the reasons that we believe what we believe. But let me offer this to you for just a moment, because I'm with you, man. Like, 
I can't get enough of that stuff, and I often have to be convicted by God's Spirit to understand once again that the greatest apologetic that we have as followers of Jesus isn't something that we say, it's not even something that we believe, it's something that we do. It's the way that we do life together, community, family, spiritual friendships. Remember just a moment ago that Jesus gives us this new command in John 13, 34? He says, I want you to love, but catch this, he says, don't love the way that you've seen the world love. I'm going to give you a specific way and manner that I want, you, I want you to love just like I've loved. And when you do, Jesus says, your love for one another. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, so glad that you are here. But I'm talking just to Christians for just a moment. If you're not a Christian, you have the opportunity right now just to kind of pull back the curtain and see, oh, that's why you all do what you do, and that's why you're no different than the rest of the world. You get to sit back, and you can just judge us for just a moment. The rest of us need to lean in and understand this is God speaking to us. And healthy relationships begin with you, not the person next to you, but the person you see every morning you, you look at when you wake up and see yourself in the mirror. It begins with you. And Jesus said that when we learn to love each other, like he loved us. When we learn to love the church, like he loved us, our love for one another will prove to the world. It'll be our greatest apologetic. And then he goes on, he actually prays for this. Possibly one of the most radical prayers that Jesus prayed. He says, I pray that my people would experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. So when we're united, then the world looks and says, Something about them. Something about them. It's not what we say. It's not what we believe. It's the way that we one another one another. That the world is, all, that the world, that Jesus says that's the way that the world's going to, that's what the world's going to see. And then say, I want to be a part of that. Now listen, when we do that, according to Jesus, the world will want in on it, but this is important to note, the world won't want in on it because it's easy. It's not easy, but because it's better. The ways of Jesus are rarely easier than the ways of the world, but they're always better. And sometimes even as Christians, we just need more endurance to stay at it, to stay in it. I'm alarmed at the fact how many times that Paul in the scriptures began to pray for the church just that they'd have strength and endurance we need more strength and endurance today just to stay at it, to stay in the game, to keep pressing forward, to keep following Jesus, to keep loving one another even when it's difficult. So I want to give us this morning in my remaining 13 minutes, dear God, three things, three things as it relates to spiritual friendships. And I believe that these three things will help us because as we identify them, it'll give us the endurance that we need to continue to stay in the game so that the world will look and say, whoo, I want to be a part of what's happening at Queen City Church. The first one is we got to know that spiritual friendships are messy. Come on, somebody. Friendships are messy. I wish that wasn't true, but it is true. And it's not just true today. It was true when Jesus invited his 12 followers to come follow him. In Matthew chapter 10, we see the very early beginnings, the genesis, if you will, of Jesus inviting his 12 followers to come be with him for the three years that they followed him. And it says, Jesus calls his 12 disciples, gives them authority to drive out spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. Now catch this. First Simon, who's later called Peter, then his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, 
Thomas, now catch this, and then Matthew the tax collector. There's the first name of somebody who shares a moniker behind their name. Then James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And then here's the second one, Simon the zealot. And then Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. There's two people here that Matthew felt it was important to share a little bit more insight as to who they were in comparison to the other ten that he just listed off. He says, first there's Simon the zealot. First thing you got to know about a zealot is that these were revolutionaries who plotted actively against Roman oppression. Now Matthew, the tax collector, is on the payroll of Rome itself, taking advantage of the poor and making himself and others more rich. Now a zealot was widely known to come after tax collectors and kill them in the dark. And Jesus is like, I'm going to build a team that's going to change the world. And on it, I want a zealot. Yeah, tax collector, you come along for the ride too. This is going to be fun. Let's sit back and watch. This is going to be a good time. Now consider this for a moment. If you were building a team and you had the opportunity to invite 12 people on that team, this is no stretch of exaggeration. It's going to sound a little bit comedic, and I kind of intend it to, but I also believe it's very real. And on that team, you said, you know what? I'm going to include Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> come on, guys. Come on. Follow me. There would have been 10 times the amount of tension on Jesus' team as what would be on your team with those two individuals. Because at least, to the best that we understand, they're not trying to kill each other. But a tax collector and a zealot, there's a lot of tension on this team. I want to offer to you just, I think this will help you. It has helped me. And I believe that it's helped our church quite a bit as well as we've unpacked this over the last few years too. I think there's three buckets that we can put our theology, our faith, our convictions, and our opinions into one of these three buckets. The first bucket would include, we'll throw this up on the screen, the first bucket would include the clear biblical beliefs and practices that unite all followers of Jesus. Now, these would be things that you believe in relationship to the authority and the inerrancy of God's word, that believers all across the world unitedly believe the same thing, or they, we ought to, rather, believe the same thing as it relates to the inerrancy of Scripture. This should be, maybe in this bucket, we could, we could put the Trinitarian nature of God, that God is three in one, the ways in which he even relates with each other, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in perfect unity is the same way that the Lord desires for us to relate with one another in perfect unity too, that he modeled for us what relationship is to look like when he says, I'm a three-in-one God. This should be that Jesus Christ is the full propitiation for our sin, which is a fancy churchy way of saying he did for us what we can't do for ourselves so that we could be made right with God. Now in the second bucket, we won't unpack the entirety of these buckets, but the second bucket would include beliefs and practices that unite followers of Jesus who join together in a particular specific local church. Case in point, Queen City Church. But just kind of using all churches together, this, these might be things that the church believes about baptism, baptizing babies, children, adults, what they believe about women in leadership, what they believe about the spiritual gifts or the charismatic ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then the third bucket would include things related to beliefs and practices about which Christians in the same local church may disagree. You following with me here? i got to go through this pretty quickly. I won't unpack all of this. We don't have time. And the point this morning is not to say what belongs in each bucket, but these would be things maybe as it relates to political persuasions about you know, different things that you feel passionate about within politics that there may be disagreement on. And I would even venture to say that in a healthy church there is disagreement on those things. 
These would be things that a church, individuals within the church, would disagree as it relates to end times, what's going to happen in the end of days and how all that's going to play out. Now, problems, and this is what I want you to get most here. So let's, let's bring it back away from the buckets. All right, ready? Ready? Problems for unity in the church begin when we confuse these buckets and we forget how to love people in the church whose beliefs in any bucket are different from ours. Problems in the church begin when we take second and third bucket issues and we put them into a first bucket priority. And they don't belong in the first bucket. My family and I, I've got two kids. I forgot to show you a picture. Can I show that picture? Because they're so awesome. They'll put it up there as I'm sharing this story. You'll be like, oh, and I'll know that it's up there then. We love... <laughs> That's a good looking bunch right there. My daughter's 14, going on 15 years old. Pray for me, I got a teenager. And my son is nine years old and he's learned how to smile. <laughs> but my family and I, we love ice cream. Like we love ice cream. Like some of you like ice cream, we love it. And, and what's unique about us though is that we all love different types of ice cream. We all love going to different places. So Sunday night, we often will go get ice cream and I want to go to Wits. And I know you all want to go to Grater's and we got Grater's too, but we came up with Jenny's too and Jenny's is better. Anyway, and, <laughs> and, and my daughter, she wants to go to this spot called Little Ladies. And, and my wife says she doesn't have an opinion, though we know she actually has the strongest opinion. And, and my son is like, just bring me ice cream home. Go get it for me and bring it back to me because I'm the youngest and you all ought to do everything for me. And yet there's a lot of division that happens when it's time for us to go get ice cream because we all have really strong opinions. We end up going to different places just to each get our own favorite types of ice cream. Now, it would be crazy, though, if we stopped talking about ice cream in our home simply because it was going to bring up some division in our home. Because ice cream is not what makes us a family. Now, ice cream feels very trivial, and it is very trivial in comparison to some of that which oftentimes we find ourselves divided by within a church. But those things are not what make us a family. Jesus, the first bucket priorities, is what makes us a family. I come from a blended family. I've got a stepmom, a stepdad, a biological mom, a biological dad. All of them have been very involved in my life for a long time. I have a stepbrother. I have three half siblings. I have one full-blooded biological sibling. They are all my family, though. You cross any of them, you cross me too. Because we're in this thing together. But don't tell me that our family isn't messy at times. Our family is messy. But they're still my family. And so I'm never going to abandon my family. I'm never going to talk bad about my family. I'm never going to talk about my family to somebody else when my family isn't around. I'm going to talk to them directly. And so we've got to understand, though, that we... Here, let me, let me offer this to you, and I'm going to move on. God, it took way too long on that. Here's how we talk through some of these issues together, though. We talk through our views with God's word as our authority and God's grace in our heart. Equally, equally and deeply convicted and equally and deeply compassionate towards those who don't see and share the exact same identical convictions as us. And that's how we've got to talk through this stuff. And because relationships are messy, we also have to we got to understand this, that spiritual friendships require reconciliation. Making friends is easy, at least in comparison to keeping friends. Growing old as friends, whoo, 
That requires deep humility. Humility to say, I am wrong. Can we practice that together this morning on three? Can we all say that? Ready? One, two, three. I am wrong. Some of you didn't say it. Some of y'all didn't say it. I saw you. Your mouth was not moving. Others of you, your spouse was like, whoo, that sounded good on you. <laughs> that was sexy. We, we need to practice being wrong. But the problem is that few of us have had practice, or at least few of us have allowed ourselves to practice being wrong. But one of the joys of following Jesus is not only are we allowed to be wrong, but our continual acknowledgement that we are wrong is a sign that we're on the right path. There's something in our life in social science referred to as confirmation bias. Many of you have heard this in the field of psychology. Confirmation bias is simply our tendency to cherry pick information that confirms our existing beliefs or ideas. And we can all hear the exact same information, but perceive it and then actually portray it differently than the person who heard the information the exact same way that we just heard the information. And I share that with us because I think sometimes we need to say, you know what, I might be wrong about this. I may be seeing this incorrectly, knowing that I might have a bias towards something, and we all do. That's a, re- that, that's, that's a result or a consequence of the family of origin that I grew up in. That's a result of the ways in which I understand or maybe don't understand the scriptures. That's a result of what I want more than what I actually can recognize what I need. We have confirmation bias. And here's what I want us to understand. We have been taught to repair and reconcile relationships by trying to convince other people that we're right rather than accepting that there are times where you are wrong. It's not easy for me to accept that I'm wrong. But I thank God that I have a wife, and I say this with sincerity, who will gently but oftentimes sternly tell me, you're wrong. And I thank God that I have friends in my life who will gently but with conviction say, Jordan, you are wrong. And we need to accept the fact that in order to repair relationships, and we need People who are willing to take up this mantle of saying, I'll be a part of the solution, not the problem. I'll be a part of repairing, not dividing. And in order to do so, we have to accept the fact that there are often times where I'm wrong. Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but if I teach this right with the remaining time that I have, I believe you understand it. The goal in our relationships isn't reconciliation. Because unlike a toy or a broken iPhone, or a dish, you don't have control over the entire process of repairing it. See, when it comes to broken relationships, we always must work and pray and strive toward relational reconciliation, but you don't have control over the whole process because reconciliation can't be the goal in repairing relationships, and here's why. You should never set a goal for another adult. You can set a goal for you, But the moment that you start setting goals for other people, you now have an agenda for someone else, and an agenda will always undermine relationships. Agendas ensure that broken relationships stay broken. Do you enjoy when people have an agenda for you? No. And likewise, people don't enjoy when you have an agenda for them, and the only thing that happens as a result of having an agenda is people put their walls in put their guards up. They become more and more defensive. So the goal isn't reconciliation. Here it is, here it is. Dear God, I pray that that we get this now. The goal is no regrets. The goal is knowing that you did everything you could do 
that you removed every unnecessary object to reconnecting, which means that no matter who's at fault, you and I have a part to play in this process of reconciliation, but we can't control the outcome. And now if you're a Jesus follower, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't optional. This is a command that we saw in John 13 all the way through John 17. See, reconciliation, my definition is, it's a restoring of a relationship. Consider this for a moment, that your heavenly father was not content to simply forgive you. Forgiveness was only half of the equation. Reconciliation was the other half. See, when it comes to forgiveness, I hold all of the cards. It's like we tell our kids, you can't control what other people do to you, but you can control what you do to them. I can control forgiveness, but I can't control reconciliation because reconciliation involves both parties. God's forgiveness was a means to an end, but it was not his hopeful intended end. God forgave, why? To remove every obstacle to reconciliation, the obstacle being sin. Consider how Jesus approached every relationship that he walked into. Maybe no place we find this better observed than in Luke 15, where he tells us the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And every single time, what did Jesus do? He walked toward that which was lost, that which was broken. He, he put in the 99%, but he still had to wait for that 1% back. So the goal in our relationships is no regrets. That we're saying, I'm willing to take 99 steps, but I'm not going to have an agenda of reconciliation because I can't control reconciliation. I'm not going to try to manipulate this situation, but I'm going to forgive. I'm going to move forward to the best that I have a responsibility to move forward to. And this may not be easy, but it is essential. And the reason why this is so difficult is because it's messy, as we mentioned a moment ago. Because forgiveness and reconciliation requires proximity. It requires moving toward the mess. But if you following Jesus isn't a little bit messy, I would offer to you and I would offer to me, I'm in this with you, that we may not be following Jesus, we may be inviting Jesus to follow us. Because as it relates to our relationships, following Jesus is messy. But it's necessary for the sake of the world, knowing that Jesus is who he said that he is. And then lastly, I'm closing with this. It requires commitment. Spiritual friendships require commitment. Acts 2.42, they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the life together, to the common meal, and to prayers. They committed themselves. They didn't wait to be convinced. They didn't wait to be inspired. They didn't wait to be encouraged. They didn't wait till the atmosphere was just right. They didn't wait to say, well, the worship was exactly what I wanted it to be. The teaching was exactly what I wanted to hear. No, they said, I'm committing myself. Why? Because my faith depends on it. The world's faith depends on it. Cancel culture is so anti-Christ, and yet we engage in it the same way the rest of the world does. It breaks my heart that people could have a public sin and we will keep them at arm's length within the church. They could have a private sin and we still include them because we just don't know about it. That is anti-Jesus. And when it comes to spiritual growth, listen, listen, church, listen, listen. This is so simple and it's gonna sound so elementary, but it's the people who stay that grow. 
Joseph Hellman in his book, Why the Church Needs to Become More Like Jesus, he says spiritual formation occurs primarily in community. Don't miss that. We both grow and thrive together or we don't grow much at all. And this tends to be the breaking point for most of us because to live in healthy community means that we can't just do what we want. We can't just say what we want. We are no longer our own. We can't just have whatever we want because the ultimate goal of Jesus' community is to be a place where you learn to love. Dallas Willard said it so beautifully when he said that Christian community is Jesus' school of love. Woo! This is, the, this is the greatest place, the church, the people of God, to practice learning how to love. You don't quit a sport just because practice got hard. No, you say, thank God that it got hard because it means I'm going to play better on game day. You don't quit church just because it got a little hard. You say, no, I'm going to stay at it because game day is Monday morning and the world needs me to understand how to love them when it's not easy to love them. Those who stay are those who grow. And I'll close with this thought right here in Ephesians 1, verse 5. This is, for me, it's one of the most beautiful scriptures in the New Testament. It says, God decided in advance. Woo! How many of y'all know God thought about you well before your mama and daddy ever had a thought about you? He said, God thought in advance to adopt us into his own family. He, he adopted, there's this language of adoption. See, the moment that you say yes to Jesus, you become a child of God, you know that. But simultaneously, you become a brother or sister too, no choice. One scholar said it like this, that you have been familified by grace through faith. I love that. Familified, by the way, is not a word for all the English teachers in here. But it is a beautiful, a beautiful word to represent our understanding of what happens when you said yes to Jesus. And you and I, I'll speak for myself, I may not always like the people in my new family. Some of them are the most irritating people I've ever known, but my life is bound up with theirs. And therefore, I am to laugh with them and mourn with them. When they're persecuted for the sake of Jesus, I should feel sorrow as though it were my own brother being persecuted and wronged. I ought to give towards those financially in Israel and otherwise Ukraine and all across the world who are experiencing persecution within the, within the church. I'm to rise to the defense when I can, as Micah 6.8 says. I'm to act justly. This means that I work for justice for my brothers and sisters. I do what I can to relieve their suffering, just as Jesus did. And I may at times wish that these people were not in my family. There will always be people in this family whom I'm closer to than others. The goal is not to have hundreds of different close friends, but nonetheless, we are all still family. And so I close with this question. Do my words, ask yourself this. I know I went a little over on time right now, and so forgive me, but I don't want to rush this moment. And so I want us to just take a moment, ask yourself this question. Do my words, actions, life, and relationships reflect God's heart for unity, reconciliation, and life together? Taking personal responsibility, personal inventory of yourself, I have to ask myself, as a pastor at Ethos, do my words, do my actions, does my life, is it just to get what I want, is it just to build the church that I desire the most, or is it a reflection of what Jesus desires the most within his church? Is it a reflection of unity, reconciliation, and life together? One more slide. 
The enemy of actionable is the word interesting. Some of you will leave here today and say, that was interesting. That church, that church, Queen City, that was interesting. That vision that Pastor Brian so convincingly and convictingly laid out for us a few weeks ago, that's interesting. And we'll miss out on the action, the application of what God's calling us, instructing us, convincing and convicting us to do because it's just interesting. We open up the word of God and we say, "Woo, Jesus, <laughs> those words in John 17, the prayer that you pray, that's cute, interesting. Then we move on. But may today be a day where we say, Lord, that's not just interesting. I want to do something with it. I want to move forward in this life together. Maybe the simple decision for you is to take mental note that when it comes time to sign up for life groups here in the coming months that you say, I'm going to do that. Maybe for you, it's to reach out to a friend this week and to consider grabbing coffee with them, someone who, who you've broken relationship with and held them at arm's length, but you need to pursue reconciliation. Maybe for you, it's not even the pursuit of reconciliation, it's just forgiving. Maybe that relationship will never be reconciled. And we pray that it is, but that's not your goal. That's not your agenda. Your goal, your agenda is no regrets. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to move forward. And forgiveness is not an instantaneous act. Forgiveness is a long obedience to the same direction of saying, I forgive you. Ooh, tomorrow I forgive you. Forgiveness is a little bit like that, that pesky little piece of flint on the floor of your home that you sweep over with your vacuum and it just doesn't seem to be coming up and finally you just keep sweeping over it and you think you got it and five minutes later it shoots itself out again and you're like I gotta vacuum that thing up again forgiveness is a little bit like the ACL tear you can tear your ACL you go to the doctor they they take you into surgery they repair the ACL but how many of y'all know you ain't walking on that ACL tomorrow You've got a long journey ahead of continuing to allow that thing to repair itself. But you made the decision. It's repaired surgically, but it takes time for it to play itself out. And maybe today is that moment where you say, I'm going to let surgery happen on my ACL. I'm going to forget. I don't know what it may look like or what the Lord may ask you to do this morning, but the team's going to lead us in a moment of response. And I just want to offer to you that you close your eyes to avoid being distracted. I want to pray over you. I want to pray over this house. I want to pray over this church. I want to pray over this vision. God, you're so good. Father, we magnify you. We glorify you. We honor your word. We honor your ways. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space, into our lives. We invite you into our imaginations now to speak to us. Where you are encouraging us to forgive, I pray that there would be courage in this place to do so. If there's a face of someone or a name of someone that keeps coming up within us that we ought to reach out to, I pray that you give us the courage this week to do so. If there's someone who needs encouragement, who's going through a difficult season, God, I pray that you would put those individuals on the minds and the hearts of everybody in this room and those watching online right now that they would reach out, send a message, send a phone call, Send even just a, a handwritten note, a prayer towards them. But God, use us to be the people, even when it's inconvenient, to be the answer to your prayer for you. 
If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at queencitypeople or visit queencitypeople.com.